We'll begin reading in the middle of the seventh verse <clears throat> and read uh, through the end of the twelfth. Um, I'll tell you that in a minute. Let me just begin in the middle of verse 7. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you, both of you and me. I, I began in the middle of verse 7 because really verse 7, uh, or the middle of it, begins somewhat of a new section of his letter. Uh, in verse 7, you get this, uh, Paul begins to tell them a little bit of his motivation and why it is that he is uh, writing, <clears throat> why it is that he has such a desire to see them. Um, this is not a section that contains a great deal of meaty doctrinal content. Uh, its primary focus is, is pastoral uh, in nature. Uh, I, I want to say purely pastoral, but Paul is never purely anything. Uh, he is purely pastoral, but you see his great doctrinal content, even his, in his pastoral concerns. In his great doctrinal sections, you see his pastoral concerns. But uh, if you had to weigh something, yeah, this is Paul speaking somewhat as a pastor to these people. Uh, and he has a, a heartfelt desire for them. And um, he says to them um, this, this comment, grace to you and peace from God our Father, that he uses frequently. This is something that Paul often says uh, to his beloved churches. Uh, and when you stop to think about it, um, once you've said that, there's not a whole lot else you can say. Here's a pastor who is thinking about some, um, some uh, Christian church in Rome and wonders, what do these people over in Rome need most? And what he comes up with is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. What, what a great statement. Um, above all else, the thing that these people, that Paul wants these people to have is grace. Grace to you. Now, um, what is this grace? Now, ladies and gentlemen, I think you know enough um, that were we to, sp we could spend hours on some kind of effort at defining grace. I'm only going to give it a minute or two, but um, uh, grace has to do with goodwill, goodwill, favor, uh, kindness, favor given to people who never deserved it. It's, um, were it not for this grace, there would be no Christian. None of us would stand. There is favor and kindness, goodwill, usward uh, from God. Um, it, is an, it, it describes, the term grace describes an attitude on the part of God. It's an attitude of love that he has towards sinners. If I had to tell you my favorite, 
my favorite summation of the term grace. It is simply this. It is the disposition on the part of God to love sinners. That's what grace is. That he is disposed. He is, he is predisposed to love sinners. And you may recall when I started the, the parable of the prodigal son, I, I, I started out by saying, um, this is not a parable about one son. It is not even a parable about two sons. It is a parable about the father. The father as he is portrayed and pictured as receiving sinners. It is a, it is a parable about grace. And, and um, there's a lot that you can learn from the parable of the prodigal son, and I hope we learn all of it. But primarily... That picture that I brought to ch that church uh, to church on Sunday and, and the parable itself depicts a disposition on the part of God to love sinners. And ladies and gentlemen, if that were not so, none of us would stand. But grace is that which describes his, his disposition to love people who don't deserve to be loved. Um, that's what Paul thinks these people need most to know and to have and to enjoy. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. When, um, when grace is experienced, what does that lead to? It leads to peace. Grace to you and peace. Peace is the is the natural concomitant. It is the, it is the inevitable result of uh, having been overtaken by grace. Now, gang, um, I, I want to spend a moment, I want to spend longer on this word peace than I spent on, uh, on the word grace because there, there is something about it that you need to understand. And I, um, I have, well, I, I shouldn't overstate my case, I, on a, uh, in the last month, I guess I have done it twice, I met with a group of guys this morning uh, at, the, um, at the deli in the Crescent Center. And it is such a privilege. I, I, I'm in the ministry to do things like this. I, I love it. Well, they're, 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 they have a little Bible study. They meet together every Wednesday. And from time to time, they run into things that, that are... Um, uh, that are questions that they can't seem to answer for each other. And so then they call me and say, would you come meet with us again? And so I trickle on over there and, and just enjoyed immensely. But one of the things that, that was on their mind this morning was this concept of peace. Um, and there, and I don't want to tell you what was, what, what they were, um, were told, but, but the point is this, ladies and gentlemen. If you've got your Bible still open, flip over with me to Romans chapter 5. Um, great statement. If you've ever uh, memorized, here's a good one that I would recommend for you to memorize. It's uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is a text that describes something completely and totally objective because of the finished and accomplished work of Christ there has been peace with God established my brother and sister in Christ you can never forget that peace is objective 
That is peace with God. That is objective. It is there because of something that was accomplished completely apart from you. And having that established, that, that accomplished, peace. I, ladies and gentlemen, am in a relationship with God of peace. There is peace between him and me. We have been reconciled. Now, that's not always been the case, folks. Because as you know, peace is the opposite of, of strife. Peace is the opposite of warfare. You know, uh, you've heard me say this before. Um, I, I, I do my share of weddings. Um, I do lots of weddings, actually, I think. I'm going to do two on the same day in December. Um, but people love my wedding ceremonies. They love them. They, uh, they walk out and they say, wow, those people are married. And I want to say, well, what did you want them to be when we got finished here? <laughs> Living in adultery? What, what, did you, what, what did you think was going to happen? But, oh, you know, they pat me on the back and, and oh, man, you really know how to tie a knot, don't you? <laughs> and I say, yes, yes, oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to be gracious with that kind of, you know, <clears throat> But, but they, in the main, they love them. Oh, but ladies and gentlemen, there is one thing about my wedding ceremonies that people get so angry at. In fact, on one occasion, I did a wedding, and a man attended who was an ethnic Jew. He wrote me, wrote me a letter and told me how much he was offended at what I said. I wrote him, no, no, I called him. And we had the nicest three or four phone conversations over these issues. But my, my point is this, ladies and gentlemen. If peace needs to be established, what does that mean the situation prior to peace was? Ladies and gentlemen, it means warfare. There was enmity between me and God. Now, the, the portion of my wedding ceremonies that people hate is the part where I say, Men outside of Jesus Christ are enemies of God. There is no peace between them and God. And I don't say that. I just say, now, in case you wondered if that was in the Bible, I just want you to see it. Because I always say, you know, that's not my word. The Bible uses that word. And they say, well, I'm not an enemy. The last thing in the world that people want to think is that they're, that they're an enemy of God's. Oh, I'm indifferent. I don't give a hoot. I, I, I'm, uh, I don't uh, have any kind of smidgen of spirituality about me. But I'm no enemy of God. Why, I live in the South. <laughs> uh, how could anybody down here be an enemy of God's? Well, ladies and gentlemen, you read with me. Um, Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if when we were... What does your Bible say? <laughs> it says enemies. Do you know the statement in, in 1 Corinthians 15 where it says this is going to happen and this is going to happen until all of his enemies will be placed at his footstool? Ladies and gentlemen... That is a description.
of the condition of man outside of Christ. They don't like it. They like to think that, that uh, the two of them just don't bother each other. But they are enemies, ladies and gentlemen. Enemies. Now, according to this little statement in Romans 5, through our Lord Jesus Christ, peace has been established. The guns have been put up. The battle lines have been erased. There's no more enmity. There's no more warfare. That's, there's, there's been a... There's been a truce because God has made peace with me. And I didn't deserve, but peace is established. That peace, ladies and gentlemen, is objective. But there is another peace. And it is subjective. There is peace with God, and there is the peace of God which is mentioned in Philippians 4, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know something. There are significant periods in my life when I didn't have peace, the peace of God. Okay? In fact, some of you might be sitting here tonight full of angst. Do you know that word? That's a great German word. Uh, A-N-G-S-T. Angst. We get our English word anxiety from it. You might be sitting here full of angst. Very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, I think the whole world is full of angst. Have you driven on the expressway lately? People are angry. <laughs> They're very angry. Uh, in fact, there's restlessness. Peace is not only the opposite of, of strife, it is also the opposite of restlessness. I remember reading a book several years ago, and I was doing this thing on biblical femininity and uh, you know the last thing in the world a preacher wants to do is tangle with women particularly over women's rights and women's issues and women's roles and and I I am 51 years old and I learned it about four months ago but, but um, so I don't tangle I'm a, I'm a very peace-loving human being um, in other terms another term for that would be coward <laughs> um, uh, but uh, smart I read a book years ago when I was still doing singles and, and was trying to define biblical femininity it was written by Beverly LaHaye and um, um, I, I want to say it I was about to give you the title but I'm, it, the word was in there but I'm not sure I've got it exactly right but she wrote a book entitled The Restlessness of Women the whole book is about restlessness among women because of all their newfound liberties. I'm happy for you ladies, but you've never been more restless in all your existence. Restless. Well, that's kind of serenity that, that we can enjoy as believers. It comes and it goes. When I have it, I love it. When I don't have it, I know it. But that's subjective, ladies and gentlemen. But now here's where the guys this morning were getting far afield. When I don't have the peace of God subjectively, that does not mean in any sense that I have lost my peace with God objectively. That's done. I don't get any more of it. I'm already at peace with God. 
I'm no more at peace with him today than I was 30 years ago when I met him. That's peace with God established through Christ Jesus. But the peace of God, I miss that a lot of times. I wish I didn't. I wish I had more of it. That's my own fault. That's your own fault. But when you don't have it, ladies and gentlemen, the question that should pop in your mind is not, am I a Christian? Uh, it may need to pop in your mind. Maybe you're not. But just because I don't have some kind of subjective emotional state, it doesn't change where I stand. I have peace with God. And I am charged with the responsibility of finding more and more often and more and more frequently the peace of God. You know, one of the things that I think is such a great contributing factor to the peace of God is assurance. And I hope you've got it. I, I'm afraid that evangelicals in the South get it far too easily. They come to it way too rapidly. Uh, they never uh, fight their way to it. And that, that, I think, is a terrible misfortune because uh, there are people who ought to be questioning their salvation who never do because somebody told them that, you know, they'd be calling God a liar or something like that. Now, but I'm not saying that you can't have assurance. I hope you do. You know what the Bible says, ladies and gentlemen. Play commentarian with me just for a minute. Um, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. You know why John wrote his book? You know why John wrote 1 John? One of the reasons, at least, was so that you and I could know that we know, that we know that there is a sense of safety, that we are really indeed at peace with God. And when you don't have it, ladies and gentlemen, it is a fearful thing, you know? Um, But very frankly, folks, You can die tonight without assurance. And if you're a Christian, you're still going to heaven. Do you understand that? Because peace with God was established. Now, you might have lost touch with the peace of God. I'm sorry. And I I, I do too. Um, Today, I was driving to an appointment, and this woman was in front of me in a suburban. And uh, I was at the corner of uh, West Street and Poplar, turning east. No, west. Do you know that there's a, there's a turning lane there? <laughs> and then if the light is red and you're in the turning lane, you have permission to turn. The lady in front of me apparently didn't realize that. And at that moment, I must admit, there was not peace, not much peace of God. <laughs> it wasn't any peace anywhere. But, uh, but I, I hope you see the distinction that I'm trying to draw simply between... Objective. And ladies and gentlemen, what Paul has in mind in Romans 1 1, or Romans 1 7, is that peace that is objective. The peace that is established because God has a predisposition to love people like us. And so he laid down his, his sword against us. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of, uh, a couple of things I want to show you in that. God our Father. Gang, there is no such thing as the universal fatherhood of God. God is not the Father 
of every creature on the face of the planet. That's what the, uh, the liberal wants you to believe and the uh, ecumenical council and the worldwide uh, uh, council of ecumenicity, they want you to believe that there is a universal fatherhood of God. It's nonsense. Jesus says, I know who your father is in John 8. You are of your father the devil. Jesus said that. But if that sword has been laid down and peace has been established, now I can say he is ours. By the way, there is a universal creaturehood of man, but never a universal fatherhood of God. I mean, we're all creatures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're not all sons of this God. And gang, um, the, the idea of God being our father was a, was a concept that was completely unknown to Judaism. You know, Judaism would make, would make long lists of names that they could call, that they could rightly and, a, and appropriately call God. They would, uh, you know, you'd have uh, Elohim and El Shaddai and El Roi and El Sadek and Yahweh and El. And they had all these names, they had a list of names that Judaism approved of as the right names for God. Conspicuous by its absence was the name Father. So when the disciples come to Jesus and says, Jesus, you know, we sense that, a, that an amazing dimension of your, uh, your ability is your prayer life. Could you teach us to pray? He'd be glad to. When you pray, say, Our Father. That was completely unknown to them. The idea that God was Father, whoa, that was big. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, uh, do you remember at the, in, the, in the closing oh, hours of Jesus' life, Philip, it's in John 14, um, Philip comes to Jesus. He says, okay, Jesus, okay. Um, I, I guess we're about to lose you here. And uh, this is my paraphrase, by the way. Um, it looks like you're, you're going somewhere. We don't understand it quite yet. But um, uh, i got one other thing I'd like for you to do, Philip says. One more request, and that'll be enough. Show us the Father. You know what Jesus said? Philip, Philip, have you been with me so long? And you don't know that he who has seen me has seen the Father. But ladies and gentlemen, the concept of the sonship, of being allowed into the family and having God as my Father, completely unknown to Judaism, still is. That concept still blows them away, ladies and gentlemen. Grace to you. And peace from God, our Father. Not theirs, but ours. Uh, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I draw your attention to the conjunction and, because ladies and gentlemen, what is it um, that you can put by the side of God? Nothing but God. I think that little conjunction and um, tells me that those two are equal. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I uh, told Learning Norcross that we were going to get a verse and a half uh, tonight uh, because he's been so tacky about how slow I've been moving. So uh, uh, let, let me jump into verse 8 here and try to uh, wipe this out in 11 minutes. Um, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken up throughout the whole world. Um, Paul begins by thanking God. It's not that he thanks them. He doesn't say, I really thank you, Romans, for being so faithful in your church attendance and sending money over to Macedonia. No, I thank God. And he thanks God because, because the message of their saving faith or the existence of their saving faith has been broadcast to the whole world. By the way, guys, you, you do realize, don't you, um, th this is the term that I, I mean. This is something that I, that you that you might ought to firm up in your language, um, because I don't use this term much, um, because it's a tad misunderstood. What what I often use is this term. Now you can take it or leave it. It's free of charge. But um, do you realize that every Christian has this? but that demons have this. And do you further realize that even those in this group, there are some who are particularly blessed with more of this? Now, all of us got this. But there are some inside the body who have the gift of faith. It's not talking about that one. That's a gift too. But there are some of you who are gifted, it's mentioned, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9. But there are some of you who are able to trust God when the rest of us want to run. You have the gift of faith. Um, it's almost like you can, you, you can see how things are going to come out before they come out because you, you trust God more than the rest of us. Um, but now that's not what Paul is excited about. He's excited about this. Um, I, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. People, every place I go has heard, have heard that there are some Christians in all places, Rome. He loves it, ladies and gentlemen. He loves to hear that people have got saving faith over in Rome. That excites a pastor. It excites this pastor. Boy, it's so thrilling to know that over there, people are coming to know the Lord. That's what seems to excite Paul. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to go very far with this tonight because we really don't have time. But you need to notice something. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is, just store this away for a later date in uh, your whole theological uh, um, dialogues and discussions, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. You think China got it? How about Iceland? <laughs> the answer is no. But Paul uses language like that. He, he does it a couple. In fact, the Bible does it a lot. Do you remember in Luke chapter 2, it says that a, a, a census was taken of the whole world? Well, do you think the American Indian was included in that census? 
but you know he's using the term to describe something that's very very widespread for instance if i were to say to you everybody in the fec despises steve spurrier that's true <laughs> that's true and, and uh you know you know that that's not true but there's truth to it i mean all all I, the communicator is communicating is hatred for steve spurrier is very widespread and, and Paul is using this term to describe the whole civilized world. The Roman Empire, as he understood it, and he knew it. That's all. Um, people throughout, scattered throughout the Roman Empire, had heard that Christians had even been discovered in Rome. How exciting. Um, uh, now, how do, how do you think that became known? How do you think the whole world found out about that? There was no TV. There was no Tom Brokaw, no radio. Uh, but my point is, ladies and gentlemen, um, when revival strikes, it needs no advertisement. Um, revival always advertises itself. When, when the Holy Spirit is, is up to something, it doesn't need your marketing skill. And, and I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, one of the greatest... I, I'm, when we all die and go to heaven, and we gather at that great congregational meeting in the sky, I'm telling you, I think we're all going to conclude that the greatest blight on the... The thing that finally did us in as an evangelical church is when the church decided that the way to reach them was to market. Is to use marketing strategies and to go out and figure out how to, how to slickly appeal to them. When the Holy Spirit is up to something, ladies and gentlemen, he doesn't need our marketing strategies, I assure you. One, um, one final thing. Um, in this verse, uh, verse 8, I think you get a brief glimpse into the prayer life of Paul. He says, I thank my God. Paul frequently um, is using that term in Philippians 4. He says, and my God will provide all your needs out of his riches and glory. You know that text. Uh, he's, he's always, he's prone to use this personal pronoun. I thank my God. Um, through Jesus Christ. Guys, you know, let, let, me, um, let me read you this real fast. Um, uh, don't turn you, it'll take us longer. This, of course, is in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, you know this, I think. Listen to this. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That, that's what Paul is doing in his prayer life. He is entering the presence of holiness by the blood of Jesus. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Um, one of the questions that I was asked this morning at, at the little 11 o'clock luncheon thing was, how do we pray? Well, you pray like that. <laughs> that that's normally how you pray. Prayer is normally directed to God the Father through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. But does that mean that the Son cannot be prayed to? Not at all. Uh, Jesus says, I think it's in John 14, if you ask me anything, I'll do it. So we can direct our prayer to the second person of the Trinity or even the third person of the Trinity. If it is uh, leadership you're looking for, then ask that God the Holy Spirit will open your eyes uh, to understand the leadership of God through His Word.
But normally, normally, ladies and gentlemen, prayer is done like this. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Now let me say one other quick thing, and, and I'm finished for the night. Um, guys, this is something you've got to get down. It's not hard, it's simple. But it seems to throw people. It's called the economic principles within the Trinity. Now, does that scare you? That's, uh, that's what they talk about in theological circles, the economic principle within the Trinity. What that simply means is that each person of the Trinity is assigned certain tasks. For instance, who is it that died on the cross? Don't say God. <laughs> say God the Son. Um, who is it that um, created the heavens and the earth? We normally attribute that to God the Father, although God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are involved. Who is it that inspired this book? God the Holy Spirit. So when you when you when you're talking about the persons of the Godhead, you've got to you got to. I mean, for instance, ladies and gentlemen, I've heard people do this, and if you do this, you need to change it. It's not right. Don't pray this. Don't pray. Oh, Lord, oh, God, I thank you for dying on the cross for me. That's called patropassionism. Because the one who died on the cross for us is the second person of the Trinity. He has given that, that glory for that work. And we should never rob him of it. Unfortunately, the term God is used, it can be used to refer to the whole Godhead, or it can be used to refer to God the Father. But when you're speaking about the Son, it's God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Normally, prayer is directed to God the Father through the shed blood and authority of God the Son, empowered by God the Spirit. That's how we see him praying here. It's time for those of you who have other meetings to get to those meetings and get there fast. Oh, <clears throat> let me pray for us and then we'll head home. Father, um, for grace, we can never thank you long enough or often enough that you are disposed to love sinners, sinners like the preacher of Grace Evangelical Church, sinners like the staff and the elders, sinners like gathered in this room tonight, that you are disposed to love us is something we haven't, not, we haven't quite got used to. Might the love of God be shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Might we learn the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of God for us. And, oh God, tonight, it is so rich to know that we're no longer enemies, that peace has been established. No more fighting between me and you, O oh God. You, you brought me lovingly into submission, and I'm so glad to be there. I would be no place else. My knees are bent, O oh God, and they are bent gladly and willingly. My knees were bent, having been overcome by grace. Dismiss us now, Lord, with a sense of your ownership. We want to know that you are ours. 
and we are yours. We pray it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. As you leave tonight, just understand, men, that there is a basketball.